Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to be together. Happy Mother's Day to you mums out there. And congratulations to Libby on getting baptised. What a great moment. And uh, we're looking forward, as Tim and Esme said, to baptising more in the weeks to come. And I'm so looking forward to our week of prayer. It's going to be a wonderful time. And uh, as, as we pray that there will be many, many of you enjoy joining in with that, we, think we expect God's going to do big things amongst us. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to stir ourselves to come out in the evening, right? We think, oh, I have every intention of being there. And then six o'clock comes around and I think, I feel really tired. Anyone feel like that? Yeah? Push through. It's always worth it. Always worth it. I've never come back thinking, I wish I hadn't gone to that prayer meeting. Push through the tiredness. It's going to be well worth it. Now, I don't know what you guys do on your evenings. Often for me and for Sarah, they're quite busy. But on Friday nights, normally, when there's not a prayer night on, we kick back, we turn our phones off, and once our kids are in bed, we, we attempt to watch a movie. That's what we try and do. Now, one of the first world problems that we have uh, in our uh, nation is that there is so much choice when it comes to what movie to watch. Anyone suffer with that problem? So we kind of get the kids to bed, the phones go off, and we think, right, we're going to try and work out what we're going to watch. And it takes about 20 minutes to work out what we're going to watch. And by the time we've chosen something, we think, oh, it's probably too late to watch it now. <laughs> so to try and speed up the process, to try and make it a bit uh, easier, we, we look at reviews online, and uh, people kind of give ratings out of five for different films. And you think, oh, this one, someone's rated it five stars. And then you think, I'm just going to scroll down a little bit. And the next person has rated it zero stars and said, waste of two hours of my life. What do you do with that? Well, what you need is a bit more information, don't you? You need a two or three line description of what this film is all about so that you can know whether or not to commit the next two hours of your life to watching it. Now, I wonder what you would say if someone said, what is the Bible all about? If you had two or three lines just to describe this, to sell it to someone almost, to say why it's worth reading, what would you say? Maybe you would say it's an epic story all about the most important man who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. That would be a pretty good answer because Jesus himself said of the Old Testament, all of this is about me. It's pointing to me. And the New Testament itself is all about Jesus and what he did and said and as the church then grew, what he continued to do and say. So that wouldn't be a bad answer. But I want to give you my attempt at a two or three line description of what this book is all about. Are you ready? Here's how I would summarize it. The Bible is the story of how the eternal creator God has set about winning for himself a people from every nation on earth so that he would live amongst them and satisfy them forever. And he has accomplished this through sending his one and only son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. That's how I would attempt in a kind of cheat one sentence. That's probably two sentences there. That's how I would attempt to describe what this book is all about. Now, clearly that's not covering every detail, but I think that's good enough. The big story is this, that God wants to have a people he loves individuals. He loves you individually. We've known something of that even coming through in what people have shared this morning. But he wants for himself a people drawn from every nation on earth that would be his special people, that he would be known by them, that he would dwell among them. That's really clear from the outset of the Bible as uh, he uh, 
goes after Abraham and Sarah, and he says to them, I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky, than the grains of sand on the beach. These are going to be my special people. And we see that story unfolding as we've looked through the story of the Exodus, how God draws his people out of slavery in Egypt and promises them a land that they're going to go and be in. Right through to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, where there's an innumerable multitude gathered before the throne, crying out, worthy are you, Jesus. That's the story of the Bible, that he wants for himself a people. And that's, friends, actually, in in our hearts, just as God wants to dwell amongst a people, that is actually what our hearts want. That is ultimately what you want. Please hear this. Ultimately, what you want is to know God's presence. Ultimately, what you want to know is to dwell with God day by day. You may not think that that's what you want, but it is what you want. You might have been invited along by a friend today, and you've politely said, yes, I'll come along and come to your church and see what it's all about. But I want to give you some reality today, and it's that what you really, really want is to know God closely, to to know him dwelling with you and you walking with him day by day. You might be running after all kinds of other things in your life right now. You might be running after success. You might be running after a relationship. You might be running after popularity. But what you really, really want is to know God, to know him closely. There was a guy who uh, 1,600 years ago lived called uh, Augustine of Hippo, which is quite a cool name. And he, uh, outside of the writers of the Bible, has influenced Christianity more than any other person. A really uh, very uh, wonderful theologian. And uh, he understood this dynamic. And he said, even though writing 1,600 years ago, and we have all these notions that they were uncivilized back then and didn't know anything, he was really insightful. He said this, You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This is reality. So, as we continue our kind of fast-paced stroll through the book of Exodus today, I want to show you how God has made it possible for us to know that rest in him, for us to no longer have this restlessness within, that maybe you're experiencing in your life. I want to show you how he has gone about this. Now, we're going to come to Exodus uh, chapters 25 to 31. So this is a huge chunk of the Bible, and we're going to get through it in the next half an hour, okay? So it's a big ask. We're going to do it. And we've seen in previous weeks how God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. The people of Israel are now free, and they've been uh, led by God through the wilderness And God has given them some commandments, and he's made it very clear to them that he rescued them first. And now these commandments are theirs to obey, that they may be a special nation, a holy nation, a a nation that would shine uh, to the other nations around, that they would be God's uh, special treasured possession. And we saw a couple of weeks ago how God then fleshed out those Ten Commandments. He gave even more detail about how they were to live in the land that God was going to give them. And we saw that through those commandments, some of them hard to get our heads around, that God is a God of justice, that he hates oppression, that he does care about the way we live our lives. He's ultimately a just God. And we saw wonderfully from the New Testament how we don't live by kind of 
looking at a checklist and thinking, am I measuring up? That's not how we live our lives. We don't live under the law, but actually now we live by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who leads us to live lives that are pleasing to God. And we saw that actually Jesus himself fulfilled the law, and that at the cross, justice and mercy met. God didn't sweep sin under the rug, but on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins that we each deserve upon himself. But those chapters, though hard to get our heads around, they instruct us about God. And it's no different with chapters 25 to 31. Because these chapters, we're not going to read them all out, but they they concern the construction of something called the tabernacle, which we'll explain in just a moment. They concern the construction of a tabernacle and then the operation of the priests and how they would go about their duties. And we might read those chapters and think to ourselves, what on earth have I just read? And we might think, how is this in any way relevant to my life in 21st century Britain? It might feel so alien to us. And if you're anything like me, when you read kind of these instructions that you can start to read from in uh, chapter 25 of Exodus, all these detailed instructions of how uh, this uh, tabernacle was to operate and what it was to look like, you'd probably think, I just cannot even begin to picture it. I remember uh, during this building project, as this building got renovated, we'd sometimes have discussions with uh, constructors, uh, construction workers or with the interior designer, and they'd say, we're going to do this, this, and this. And I'd say, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I've got no way of conceiving what that looks like. So what really helped me was, was 3D uh, impressions of what it would look like, artist impressions, and then I started to get it, and I started to understand it a little bit more. So the descriptions we have are very detailed, but it might be helpful to have an image. So this is what the uh, tabernacle likely looked like. We're going to have an image up on the screen now. You can see here that it is a tent, effectively. In the desert here, this is a reconstruction of it. There's a courtyard around it. There's some basins here, which we'll talk about in just a moment. This is what it likely looked like. And this would have gone with the Israelite people uh, through their desert wanderings, and as they began their conquest of the land that God had promised them. And it would have been erected wherever they settled for long periods. And so this is what it would have looked like inside now. We've got a little bit of a, a plan of the layout here. So you can see that there's a courtyard, there's a holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. In the courtyard, there was a place to make sacrifices, a place for washing. And then in the holy place, there was a lampstand. There was a lamp that looked like a tree. It had flowers carved into it. It had branches on it. There was a table with some bread on it. And then there was an, uh, an altar where incense was burned and it rose up. And then finally, there was a curtain into the holy of holies, like the, the maximum security part. It was a, there was a thick curtain before it. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant. And this is the place where the Ten Commandments were stored And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a really intricate seat, which is known in the Bible as the mercy seat. It was like God's throne on earth. This this tabernacle represented God's dwelling place on earth, and it was where the priests uh, that God had instituted would go and meet with God and appeal to God on behalf of the people, where God would manifest his presence, where it would be known, his presence would be felt and known. Okay, so we can take that off the screen now, but that's a little bit of uh, a helpful illustration of what it looked like. So the holy place in the tent contained some things, and we might think, how is this relevant? It will be relevant to us. Now, on the way uh, in, the priest would go past a golden lampstand, some bread, and the altar of incense, as I say. 
And these things, they, they speak to us about God's big story. They're on this long journey, the people of uh, Israel, through this desert. But God wants to show them some things about what he has done. So firstly, this lampstand that the priest would have passed, it represented the Garden of Eden. So this lampstand was in the shape of a tree. So it reminded them of paradise that had been in some ways lost. It reminded them of the perfection that God made this world to have and to know. The way in which he dwelt with his creation in perfect unity. Nothing separating them. C.S. Lewis, an author from the last century, spoke about this uh, kind of nostalgia, this lifelong nostalgia that we have to be united with something that we've, we feel that we've lost. That, friends, is underneath the restlessness that we know before we come into right relationship with God through Jesus. This kind of nostalgia of nothing quite satisfies. What C.S. Lewis is getting at is that something was lost in paradise. This walking with God and knowing him closely was lost because of mankind's rebellion against him. They're turning away from him. This lifelong nostalgia that we know of, there's an aching within. Life's not complete. I don't know, I would kind of like, C.S. Lewis describes it as kind of looking at the outside of a door that we long to be on the inside of. Before we come to know Jesus, before we come to know our, our sins forgiven and our conscience cleansed, we're on the kind of outside of this door. Nothing quite satisfies in life. We kind of go looking in the wrong places for what we think will satisfy. But what only will satisfy and what will uh, give us true rest is to return to that right relationship with God. So the lampstand was a reminder of Eden, of paradise lost. But the bread was a reminder that, that God was provider. That he had made a way for them to enjoy uh, relationship with him. Although it gets even better as we're going to... Uh, come to see in a moment now through Jesus. But breaking bread together, even before Jesus' time, was a, was a way of saying, I, I enjoy relationship with you. If you say, let's break bread together, it's a sign of friendship, of uh, we're for each other. And there's bread here. God's saying, I'm, I'm inviting you into relationship with me. And then finally, there's this altar of incense rising up. It, it symbolizes, as we see often in the Bible, the prayers of God's people going up to him. So this is what the priest would have seen. But then before this priest in the holy place was this big curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And only once a year could the high priest enter in to the holy of holies. On the day of atonement, Jewish people call it Yom Kippur. It was the day in which sacrifices were made and sins were atoned for. And the high priest could enter in to the holy place once a year. You need to understand this. Once a year, the high priest and only the high priest could enter in to the holy of holies. And one Jewish uh, historian says that actually the, the priests had a rope tied to their ankle in case they died in the presence of God in the holy of holies. Can you imagine that work safety briefing? We're just going to put this rope around your ankles. Why? Oh, don't worry about that. It's going to be okay. You'll be fine. But in case he died in the, in the presence of God, there was a rope tied around his ankles. They could pull him out. 
That was the way that God had instituted things for the people of Israel. And when they were finally established in their own land, God commanded them to build a temple, which was like a a more permanent version of the tabernacle in Jerusalem, in the capital, in the heart of the nation, where the Ark of the Covenant would finally rest and where the priestly duties would be carried out in a more uh, long-term way. So that's what the temple was all about. It was a huge building. It would have been uh, one of the biggest buildings around. It would have mirrored the layout of the tabernacle that we've just seen on the screen. So why does all this matter? Why Have you come for a history lesson today? No, you haven't. You've come for good news, I hope, today. And I want to give you good news. And the good news is this, that nothing has changed and yet everything has changed. Nothing has changed, friends, in that God is no less holy. He's no less concerned about justice. He's no less uh, inapproachable by sinful people and, and, and those that have not had their sin dealt with once and for all. He is, he is no, he's not different. He's not changed. He's not lowered the bar. That might sound like bad news. And I think, friends, it is bad news until we know our sins dealt with. Because if we really were, if, if we really were made for God if we really were made to know him, and if our hearts really are restless until they find their rest in him, then it's bad news that nothing has changed. God has not changed. God does not change. It's bad news because we feel like, well, we're just on the outside of that curtain. There's no way we can get through. If that is where it finishes, then it is bad news. We wouldn't be called Hope Church if we didn't have good news. But it's bad news for us because we know that in our, in our heart of hearts, we know that we have done and said and thought things that are deeply wrong before God. And we haven't done or said things that we should have done when we should have spoken up or when we should have acted. We've done things that are wrong before a holy God. And we don't really want justice for ourselves, do we? We don't want justice for ourselves. We want justice for others. We're quite happy for justice for Vladimir Putin. We want him to be arrested and charged. But we don't want justice for ourselves. When our football team is playing, we think it's right when the opposition player gets red carded. (laughs) But if our player does the same thing, we don't want them to get justice. We, We want justice for others, not for those that we think are okay. But the reality is, before a holy God, we are all. We all fall short. And we can't enter into the rest that he has for us, for our souls. But I want to give you five bits of good news, friends. Firstly, we get to draw close to God through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Now, how it would have worked in the days that the Israelites were wandering through the desert is that if you wanted to make a sacrifice, you would carry with you a a, a lamb to the outside of the courtyard And the priest would come and inspect this lamb and look it over and see if it was unblemished. That was what would happen. And if your lamb was okay, the priest would say, I'll take it from here. And they would go on your behalf and make a sacrifice. I want you just to picture for a moment you approaching the courtyard with a lamb that's got three legs. It's got one eye. And a, and, a, and a wolf has had a good go at it. It's covered in scars and blood. 
And I want you to just a picture, just walking up to the outside of the courtyard with this. This is your sacrifice to offer. This is your offering of praise. This is what I've got. You would be told immediately, go back and get another one. This is not, this is not an unblemished lamb. This is how God had instituted it. This is what it's like, friends, with our good works. This is what it's, what it's like with what we are proud of in our lives. Look, God, I've done this. I've been able to not do this for a whole week. I've, done, I've not said that this time. I could have reacted, but this is what we think actually justifies us before God sometimes. But it's actually like bringing this lamb that is just totally, it's not unblemished. But praise God, he has provided for us the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. You see, if we want to enter into the presence of a holy God and know him and know the rest that he and knowing him brings us, we must still come with a sacrifice. We still approach him with a sacrifice. But there is not any need for us any longer to bring an unblemished lamb because we have been given an unblemished lamb in Jesus. He never put a foot wrong. There was never a moment where he sinned. He is the lamb of God. His own cousin, John the Baptist, said, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So when we want to enter into the presence of God and know him, we come with a perfect sacrifice. We don't get scrutinized and looked at and thought, well, you're not really good enough to come before me today. No, no. God inspects the sacrifice of Jesus, and he's perfect and blameless. So we get to enter in. Are you getting this? This is good news. Lord, let it sink into our hearts. Every, every time you want to pray and praise and just enjoy the presence of God, you come with a sacrifice. You don't come with your own. You come with one that's been given to you, and that's Jesus Christ, the unblemished one. And it's to- this sacrifice is totally acceptable to God. Our sins are fully paid for. Another stunning thing we need to take on board is that we have a perfect priest who stands for us in the Holy of Holies and now who holds open the curtain. Okay? Jesus is not only the perfect unblemished lamb who is our sacrifice. He's also the high priest who has entered in behind the curtain on our behalf. So the veil in the Holy of Holies, the veil separating the holy place with the Holy of Holies in the Uh, The tabernacle and then latterly in the temple was just a representative of the reality that separates God and sinful human beings. That we can't enter in. That it's not possible for us to know uh, fellowship with him. Hebrews chapter 9 says this is just a copy of the heavenly reality. But Jesus is not, as I say, just the sacrifice. He's the high priest who's entered in forever on our behalf. You see, on the the curtain would have been embroidered some angels. Okay, so these angels were actually a reminder to the people, to the priests who entered, that uh, the the fall of humankind, as as men and women uh, rebelled against God, there was angels then guarding the way back into Eden. And so embroidered on these curtains were angels almost reminding, hey, there's there's no way back in except through the sacrifice that's being made. And yet Hebrews 9 says, Jesus has entered into the holy place, not made with hands, but into 
heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us forever. He is, as the Bible says, our forerunner. He has gone ahead of us. And Hebrews 6, verses 19 to 20, which we're going to turn to now if you have a Bible with you, is really, really beautiful. It says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is an anchor for our souls, friends. We sometimes sing the song, Cornerstone. Christ alone, cornerstone. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. We sing this verse which says, my anchor holds within the veil. And we're all just singing it and we don't know what we're singing. Most of you probably don't understand what we're singing at that point. It sounds kind of old school. It's probably from a hymn, Once Upon a Time. But I'm going to sing it. It rhymes. It sounds good. But this is what it's talking about here, that Jesus has entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf, and he has now uh, opened the curtain for us, that we might enter in. Jesus is our anchor. He's never going to be kicked out. He has fully obeyed the Father. He He has entered in, having laid down his life on the cross for us. You know what happened when Jesus died on the cross, when he gave his last breath? It says in Matthew chapter 27, and verse... uh, 51, so 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice on the cross, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple, you need to understand the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was longer than this room itself. This is a huge building. It's absolutely enormous building. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So this enormous curtain that's longer than this room and really thick was torn from top to bottom, showing us that God himself was intervening and saying, the way has been made now. You can enter into the holy of holies. You can come into my presence because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because Jesus the high priest has done it and he stands there now and holds the way open for us to come. Do you understand this? Is it hating home? This is good news. So friends, when we feel condemned, when we feel, I've had a bad week, I've succumbed to those thoughts, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have responded in that way, we don't come, friends, kind of on our hands and knees, crawling backwards, thinking, I've got to do some sort of penance to get back into God's good books. No, we come, we enter in, because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and Jesus is the high priest. So we come in his name, we come because he has made the way. We enter in with confidence. We need to look upwards and see him there, who's made the way, the forerunner who's gone ahead of us. Having lived a perfect life we couldn't live, having laid down his life for us, this is our hope, friends. And so the third bit of good news is that we get to come into the presence of God every day. We get to draw near with confidence every day, not once a year on a special occasion to go and say my prayers for the year. No, no, but every day we get to draw near. What a privilege. This is what our soul is made for. This is what you really deep down desire, to draw near to God with confidence, to know him closely. This is what you desire deep down. We don't need to do some penance when we sin. That'd be like bandaging up our pathetic looking lamb, saying, here we go. No, no, our best efforts are like filthy rags before God really believe that. You need to understand that. We want to live for him. We want to honor him. But even our best efforts are filthy rags to God. 
They don't impress him. He's not like, oh, wow, okay, you've done enough now. No, it's always because of Jesus. We come and we draw close. We don't need to consult an earthly priest. We don't need to have someone say some magic things for us. I don't want to stir up in any way some, any kind of anti-Catholic thing here. We love Catholics, we do, and we must love Catholics. But when it comes to priesthood, they've got some things very wrong. The Bible couldn't be clearer. We've, we've got a priest, and his name is Jesus. Not Father John, not Father Ted. It's Jesus. And, and during lockdown, the Pope briefly understood this in this headline, where he said that people who couldn't get to confession because of lockdown can go to God directly. This is what he said. And they can be specific about their sins. They can request pardon and experience God's loving forgiveness. We, we all hoped that the Pope had finally got this. But sadly, it was a coronavirus measure. A bit like the funny stickers on the floor. Right? It was a kind of like, well, you can in this exceptional period, you can go directly to God. Friends, we don't need an earthly priest to say some magic things for us. It's good to confess our sins to one another. It's good that we might pray for one another and, and strengthen each other. But we don't need anyone to help us get to God. We don't need anyone to say some things on our behalf in order to get to God. Jesus has done it. We don't need any mere earthly priest. We need Jesus, the great high priest. And this, of course, means there is no geographic holy place now. Where is God to be found, you might ask? Well, he's no more to be found in Jerusalem than he is in Ipswich High Street. I would love to go to Jerusalem. If anyone wants to pay for me to go, come and see me. And my family. I'd love to go there. I'd love to see the historical. I'd love to go and take it all in. But there's no, God is not more to be found there than he is in Ipswich High Street. He's not. There's no holy place now. We go and say, oh, that is where the presence of God really dwells. He's not to be found more in a church building than he is in a field. As we gather here, he's not found more at the front here than he is at the back. Okay, so when we say, hey, come for prayer, it's not like, Okay, when you come past that row there, that's when you really enter the presence of God. No, it's just we've got a bit of space here, and we can pray. But there's no, there's no holy place now, friends. You can know the presence of God where you are. You can know him speaking to your heart, healing your sorrow. You can know him leading you and speaking to you and speaking destiny over you. And the same goes for when you leave this place later. You don't leave suddenly. You can't know God's presence until the next week. No, no. We can know access to God. Freedom and confidence, we can come before him because of this truth. Listen, God does dwell, we believe, in a, in a very special way when his people gather together for reasons we'll touch upon in a minute. But you can know him when you go home, when you shut the door behind you, and when you pray. You can know his presence with you. When Jesus was on earth, wherever he was, the presence of God was there. His, one of his best friends, John, wrote a, a biography of his, life, of his life. It's called the Gospel of John. You can read it in the Bible. And at the beginning, he's talking about the Word, this eternal Word. This is code word for Jesus. And he says it's through him that everything was made. And then he says these amazing words, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And in the original Greek, the word, is, the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. 
he was, as he walked this earth, the, the presence of God was wherever Jesus was. So what's the deal now? Friends, the good news is that now we, the church, are being built together as a temple for God. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, we're coming into land. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 19 to 22. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to those that were Gentiles, that didn't have a Jewish background, but had come to faith in Jesus. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, listen to this, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we, the church, friends, are God's temple now. He dwells amongst us in a very special way. We've known that to be true this morning. I believe we're knowing that to be true even now as he's speaking to hearts, as he's touching lives, as he's changing minds. We together are being built together to be a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Do you get this? So now, as right now across the world, on this day, as the church gathers in different nations, God dwells amongst his people. As we gather in our life groups, God dwells amongst his people. That changes things, doesn't it? About, well, I'm not just going to church because that's what I do on Sundays. And I want a bit of me time for myself today. No, we come because we get to know God's presence amongst us. And that is what our souls really need. And we can expect him to do great and wondrous things as we gather. I'm expectant for healings. I'm expecting for people to know freedom from addictions. I'm expecting that they're going to know salvation in him. I'm expecting that people's, the secrets of people's hearts are going to be laid bare and they're going to say, surely God is in this place. This is what we're expecting of. This is what the church is now. The church of Jesus Christ is glorious. She's not a club. She's not some group of like-minded people who like singing and quiche. All right? She's a glorious people. She's a called-out people. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When he says, I will build my church, he's saying, I will build my called out people. That's what church means. It means the called out assembly. I'm going to build my people. He's always wanted for himself a people from every nation that he would dwell amongst them and bless them with his presence and satisfy them forever. And he's done it through sending Jesus his son, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins and to be the great high priest that we so desperately need. This is what he's done, friends. This should affect everything. This should change the way we see church. We see that the church is being worth the effort. And we gather together because God's special presence is amongst us. We are where God lives. That changes things, doesn't it? It's just not just something we do on a Sunday. It's worth each of us playing our part. This is where we're going to land things in Exodus 25, because we haven't read any of Exodus today, and we're going through a series in Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. This is what God says at the outset of this building project of the temple, of the tabernacle, I should say. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him 
you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and so on and so on. And then he says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as you show Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. God is seeking here contributors to the building of this earthly tabernacle. And he's saying, let everyone be moved in their heart as to how they are to contribute. There's a, there's a everyone gets to play kind of thing here. Everyone gets to contribute. Let them be moved in their hearts. It's not... They must give me. They must do this. It's let them be moved in their own hearts. And friends, I want to appeal to us. As we get a vision for what the church is to be, this glorious people of God, let us be moved in our hearts to contribute, to play our part, not to just to kind of observe, not to consume, but to play our part, to bring what God has given us. All of the stuff that God is saying hey, let them bring these things to me, is stuff that he essentially has given them because they were slaves, didn't own stuff. And God, through defeating their enemy, has meant that they have now got stuff to contribute. Listen, all that we have, our money, our, our talents, the time and energy we have is given to us by God to give back to him, to contributing to seeing his people rising up and shining and being the blessing that we're supposed to be, to be the people that astound the world, that people look on and think, that is unlike any other people I've ever seen. This, friends, is what, this is what we have. We look at what God has given us and we say, I want to I contribute. I want to see this people being all she can be. We don't often talk about giving here at Hope, but I just felt even as I was preparing there's some here that you just need to understand. All that God has given you is, is from him. All that you have is from him. We get to contribute back to him what he's given to us. And I pray that there will be some even today who are moved in their hearts. I want to give. We don't make that a focus here. But I, I want to say, are you being stirred by what God's done for you? Are you stirred by this picture of what the church is to be? Are you stirred by what God is doing in the world then, then give. It may be your, your talents. Maybe you just know, I, I'm good with people. I can, I can serve in some ways. In the week, I can serve in different ministries. On Sundays, I can serve in different ministries. There's things that God's given you to contribute. And I'm going to pray in just a moment that God will move people in their hearts because it's a glorious thing to contribute to what God is doing in the world today. Can you imagine the joy in the hearts of the people as they got to bring their contributions to the building of this tabernacle. Can you imagine? Because it, it wasn't a compulsory thing. It wasn't a, you must do this. It was, no, God is doing something glorious. He's rescued us. And so I get to contribute from what he's given me. I get to dance to the front, as it were, and give this in. This is what God has for us. Not some giving under compulsion, but cheerful givers. And finally, friends, I just want to land it by looking at this. Exodus 29, God completes his instructions for this tabernacle. It's then going to be built. And he says this, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. 
And they will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. And that's the, re- the story of the rest of the Bible is that. And Revelation 21 is where it all kind of culminates. This lifelong nostalgia, this what we're longing for, to be with God, to know him perfectly. Revelation 21, chapter, uh, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I'm going to jump forward now to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. There's no temple in the new creation. No building, no holy place. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb that is Jesus. God dwelling with his people in perfection. That's something to look forward to, is it not? Something to stir our souls, to worship him. Can we stand together? We have time for a short song. And then we're going to bring things to a close. But can the band come and lead us? We're going to pray. Listen, this morning, if you, if you don't know this rest for your soul, if you don't know God and the relationship with him, you can right now take this step and say, Lord, I receive all that you've done for me. I receive what you've done in uh, making a way. I trust you. Forgive me. And give me new life. You can say it in your own words. Say it to him now, even as we sing. And if you do that, tell someone. Please, tell someone you came with. Tell me. Tell Tim or Esme you've seen at the front here. Anyone else that you know with a badge on. or a, Just tell someone. Because we want to help you in your next steps. We want to help you to be baptized. And to walk in community here. But for those that just already know this hope. Let's just allow God to stir our hearts We have things to contribute. We have things to contribute to the building of this glorious spiritual temple in the Lord. What he's doing in the world right now. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's breathed out by you. We thank you that we can uh, see things that are initially quite complex. And we can see now how you have brought fulfillment to them in the sending of your son. Thank you that he is the perfect sacrifice. That on the cross he laid down his life for us. The perfect Lamb of God on the cross for us. We thank you that we now come with confidence because we have a sacrifice that is unblemished. Jesus Christ. Father, this is our confidence before you. And he's now holding open the curtain, having run ahead for us. This curtain split in two that we might come into the holy of holies. Thank you, Lord, that right now we can know your presence amongst us. Would you make your presence known and felt even now? That you might satisfy the longings of hearts. Would you stir our hearts, Lord, that we would see, we get to contribute to what you're doing in the world. We get to play our part. And Lord, we so desperately want to. 
So would you move our hearts to know what it is that you've given us? We want to contribute to what you're doing. So we want to celebrate you now, all you are to us, all that you've done for us. We want to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.